Hi again, everyone. I'm Mark Renee, and this is Play by Play with me, the play by play usually provided by my guests. And of course, I am the me. Um, they're my initials. As we spend some quality quarantine time, I like to say talking back to the voices in my headphones. And today on Volume 1, Episode 12, we are joined by a fairly versatile guy, and I'm saying that as a gross understatement. John Sadak is with us. You've heard him on CBS Sports Network and Westwood One, and boy, a, a whole lot of places, including last summer on the Mets broadcasts on WCBS 880 here in New York and the New York Mets radio network. John, thank you for joining me today. First off, how are you and how is the family holding up? Well, thank you, and uh, doing fairly well. I mean, all things considered, uh, a lot of quality time uh, with one another, a lot of walks and jogs around the neighborhood, a little Groundhog Day, but everybody is healthy and happy. And uh, how have you been passing the last two months of what would have been a fairly busy time for you? Kind of varies by day, but uh, I, I try to walk and run uh, every day, do something outside, weather permitting. Uh, a lot of time with our daughter. It's been, I think, hardest on her socially. She's in first grade. Uh, so academically, she's doing great. Uh, in some ways, maybe better. But socially, that's that's been hard. Uh, so trying to FaceTime with as many people as we can, find different things to do around the house. Uh, she's really into video games and art. Uh, she's not a sports fan. I've, I've watched a lot of archived games from my childhood. Uh, to reminisce. I've tried to invite her in. She, she's had very little interest, uh, but trying to come up with something to, to keep everybody going. You are a Jersey guy, uh, born and bred from what I understand, uh, who somehow wound up in Wilmington, Delaware. We'll talk about that. I want to talk about your, uh, your career arc, uh, if you will. But uh, growing up, um, an aspiring broadcaster, who did you want to be? Who was the guy that, uh, that you figured if someday you could become the next dot, 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 who would it be? Uh, well, to be honest, when I was growing up, I, I really wanted to do something with math and science. I, I always viewed sports broadcasting as uh, impossible. It's something I would like to do, but I, I just looked at the odds of it and thought, that's never going to happen. Uh, so more realistically, I, I wanted to be an astrophysicist, actually. Uh, my only varsity letter in high school was on the math team. I was a JV hockey player. I was a rec league basketball and baseball player and wasn't very good. Uh, so my dreams of playing professionally wilted at a very young age. Uh, but I finally turned to it when I, I looked more my senior year of high school, honestly, um, at the feasibility of physics and how long I'd have to be in school and how much money I'd have to pay back. And it, it crystallized when I, I was doing an AP history presentation on race relation, 20th century America and sports impact in it. So, for instance, did Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier reflect America's change, or was it because of America's change? Ooh, good. And, and, of course, it's something you can't have a real answer to, but a part of a supporting material for it, um, I went to the, the Sports Illustrated when Arthur Ashe was named Sportsman of the Year. There was some amazing information in there about what he endured and what he had heard from others. And, uh, and coincidentally, in that same issue was this big pullout on ESPN Sports Center. And everything that went into the show. So beyond the anchors, who is a production assistant? What do they do? Who's the producer? Who's the editor? Who are the camera ops? And that's when my eyes were open. to There are so many jobs in the industry. And I thought, I know I can get 
one of those jobs. I'll be the 90 hour a week making no money production assistant that has to do everything nobody else wants to do. And maybe then I can move up and maybe I could be on the air, but if not, I'd love to be around sports. Uh, but, but that said, like among the personalities, once I, I shifted very late, you know, my senior year of high school to make that decision, I always loved nationally. I love Bob Costas uh, because he was so smart. He was so eloquent. Um, I, I thought he, he gave all shades of the picture and he had the ability due to NBC's rights at the time to do multiple sports, which I always wanted to do multiple sports. Uh, locally, it was probably Al Troutwig because he could do Major League Baseball, NBA, and NHL. And I, I just thought that was so neat to, to be able to enjoy the positive aspects of every sport. Uh, but to be honest, when I went to college, my plan was to be a sports center anchor. That was my dream. Those guys were cool and funny. And then I did studio work when I got to college and I found it unfulfilling. It was, uh, it was too scripted. It was not as challenging as I'd hoped it would be. And then I did my first live event and it was hard and I was terrible at it. And I thought, I love this. This, this <laughs> is a challenge. This is really fun. What was the first thing that you broadcast? Do you remember? Uh, the first event I ever did was as a color analyst for a men's basketball game at Kane University. And two minutes into the game, I started thinking, I really don't know what to say because I, I didn't know how to prepare. I didn't know how to be ready for a game. And the, the first events I did play-by-play play for by myself uh, were baseball, uh, the Division Three men's regional championships. They were up at Skylands Park up in Sussex County, New Jersey. Uh, and I had to fill nine innings for four games by myself. Actually, one game went to 12 innings. Oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, over time, you just – the best way, you know, to learn is to do it. And I, I was lucky that I wound up at a place where I could get a lot of reps very early. Yeah, so that was my next question. How did you wind up – I mean, you are South Jersey guy at Brit, but how do you wind up at Rowan and not one of the more traditional broadcasting schools? Uh, well, when I thought about where I wanted to go, it was very late in the game. I, I had already, when I sent out my SAT scores and everything, you, you put down what major you want. And I had put physics, astrophysics, and, uh, and mathematics. Uh, so I, I did look at Syracuse. I did look at Fordham. I, I was born in Manhattan. My family's from the Bronx and Yonkers. I spent the first half of my childhood in, in Bergen County in Edgewater, New Jersey, before we moved down the shore. Uh, but the more I looked at those places, I was intimidated, quite frankly, by the, the volume of people that were there. And I wondered, could I get reps? Could I be able to do it enough and early enough to get decent at it? I, I kind of recognized to some extent uh, how hard it would be. And when I looked at Rowan, uh, I knew some kids from my high school that were friends that went there. Uh, they had just won National College Radio Station of the Year from the, the National Association of College Broadcasters the year before. When I went on a tour, they spoke of the placement of some of their folks where they were in the industry. Um, and it, they were at all the places I wanted to be, ESPN, NBC, CBS, ABC, uh, in different roles, some not on air, but they were there. And I, I got a full scholarship. Uh, and ultimately, that was the big tipping point. Huh. Uh, my, my dad worked for the post office for years. My mom works for the county library. I was going to have to pay for school, whether by loan or something else. It was going to be on me. Uh, and I got a full tuition scholarship, and that, that pretty much sealed it. So you had a chance to do a bunch of sports at Rowan. Uh, when did you know that baseball 
was going to be your passion? Because you wound up doing some minor league ball. In fact, a lot of minor league ball. Um, and, and almost, in a way, taking the traditional path that players do, right? You start out low minors, work your way up the chain, and eventually make it to the major leagues. When did you know that baseball was your calling? Uh, it, it actually kind of came up by default. You know, to be honest, when I started looking at play-by-play, uh, when I went to college, I really didn't know. By the time I was at college, uh, on a Division three non-scholarship level, Rowan was a major national power. Uh, they were in the football title game five times in seven years. They had won the basketball title the year before I got there. They were in three Final Fours in four years. Men's soccer had won the national championship, would be in another two Final Fours while I was there. Everybody was super competitive. Uh, and I did not really like college football when I went there. I grew up in the New York metro area. I loved the NFL. I didn't really watch much college football. And I fell in love with college football doing the games there. When I first was leaving college, my yearning was to be a college football basketball announcer, either nationally or for a school. Uh, But you can't get those jobs out of college generally. And I, I started looking at where can I get work? And most of the entry level, for lack of a better term, full-time play-by-play roles where you're salaried, could have benefits, you can live on it. It's not a a very measly per-game amount where I could move and actually live a life. We're in minor league baseball and minor league hockey. And hockey's the sport I played the most growing up. And I I still, to this day, adore the New York Rangers. Uh, But I sent out tapes to everybody, junior hockey leagues in Nebraska, uh, Division II programs in Minnesota, and got no answer or no. I, I kept at one point hundreds of rejection letters from places. And uh, I decided to go to graduate school uh, partially because I love college and I didn't want to leave. You're the uh, one. And, uh, and also because, you know, it, when you're in graduate school, um, you can get a grad assistantship. So I had all my graduate school paid for and I made money to work at my college radio station. So I could still do games, get paid to do games, and go to graduate school while recognizing that in minor league baseball and hockey, you generally, you know, the carrot they dangle is doing the play-by-play, but you have to do something else that's productive for the team. Right. And that's usually sales and or public relations. Uh, we had a great PR program at my alma mater. I got my master's in PR and I focused on hockey and baseball. And just by you know, coincidence, really, the teams that I used as my sources uh, for my thesis, which was on PR of minor league baseball teams, wound up being the Lakewood Blue Claws, where I got my start as a studio producer, and then the Wilmington Blue Rocks, where I was a number two announcer and later the, the lead announcer. And uh, it, it really more economics, to be honest. I mean, I did love baseball, but uh, the only way I could do this for a living and have this really be my job and not have a day job where I moonlight doing other things was pretty much through baseball and then kind of organically through there, grow everything else out. All right. So you grow up in South Jersey in brick Monmouth County, right? Uh, Ocean County. And, Ocean, and we wouldn't call it sorry. South Jersey. It's it's to us. It's central Jersey. Well, see, I'll tell you why, because I'm from old bridge, which is pretty smack dab central Jersey. And the argument that I have with all the North Jersey people is for me, North Jersey is essentially the border with Rockland County and, of course, the 
northwest edges down to Newark Airport. And then Central Jersey is basically Newark Airport to the Art Center. And then anything south of the Art Center is South Jersey. Wow. I can only tell you, this is how I was, bo- how I was brought up. <laughs> I hear so you. to me, you're South Jersey, not terribly South. You'd be almost like a South Central Jersey, if you don't mind. Um, but more to the point, I know how it was for me um, growing up as a budding hockey fan, learning uh, hockey by watching the Rangers broadcast, Jim Gordon and Bill Chadwick, and then later Sam Rosen. And the Devils finally came in. Uh, when I was in high school. So I immediately was a Devils fan. I figured any team silly enough to move to New Jersey deserved my support. Um, (laughs) But for you growing up a little farther south as a Ranger fan on what is essentially the border of Rangers Flyers, uh, and then the Devils are in the mix too, uh, how difficult was it to be a Rangers fan in Brick? Uh, Not at all. I I would say during my teenage years, the, the, the height of my fandom, um, you know, among all of us that, you know, I played a lot. Uh, I played for our high school JV team and I played rec league hockey and uh, m- several guys that were on our group wound up playing collegiately or professionally at a low level. I would say two thirds of us were Rangers fans. Um, the other third were Devils and and we're a little too north for Flyers. Flyers doesn't really start until you're south of Ocean County. You'd have to go down like beyond LBI. We did get Philadelphia broadcast, which was awesome. Right. So on an NFL Sunday, you would get the Philly CBS and the New York CBS. You would get the Philly NBC and the New York NBC. So it was almost like having, uh, you know, the ticket before it existed because you could right. watch so many games um, that were regionalized for, for, for pro football. Uh, but most of my friends and most of the people in our school were, were Rangers fans. Uh, so when, when the, the Rangers-Devils conference final happened in 94, that was very heated. Uh, the, the Devil fans were very into it. The Ranger fans were very into it. And then in our home, it was very divided. My father is a Rangers fan. I grew up a Rangers fan. And my brother, just to be contrarian, I think, uh, or to be a, a pain in the butt, he mm-hmm. was a Devils fan. Uh, and that was sparked in part because Jim Dowd, uh, who played for the Devils, is right. from Brick. You know, he was one of the great all-time New Jersey hockey players, won a national title at Lake Superior, and, and spent a ton of time in the NHL. Yeah, I was going to ask you about him, and then you brought him up. So thank you for that. <laughs> Um, tell us how you wound up, um, doing national broadcasts for Westwood One and CBS Sports Network. Uh, well, each happened, uh, distinctly and Westwood to some extent helped with CBS Sports Network. Uh, with, with Westwood, it was born out of writing Howie Denneroff, Colt, their, their longtime, um, executive, uh, producer, vice president, the guy who calls the shots there. Uh, I found his mailing address. Uh, online, and I mailed him a physical CD with a uh, cover letter and resume and heard nothing, and followed up six months later and heard nothing. Then I got his email address, um, got a short response that he was overwhelmed with tapes. It took a year and a half from my initial uh, communication until he eventually was able to listen to what I had sent, and it was then that I learned that specifically with basketball, I had sent him some games of me doing Princeton uh, men's hoops. He needed to hear you with a partner, which I, I wouldn't even have thought of to that point. But you know, the partners that you would have with Westwood One are some pretty significant national names. And he said bluntly, you know, I've had NBA guys write me. 
that do games solo, which is still very common with a lot of NBA radio. And I won't consider hiring someone unless I hear them working with a partner. I need to hear how they interact with that person, how they bring them in, um, how they make sure that they take control of the broadcast at big moments when play-by-play needs to dominate. Uh, So I I had to solicit uh, for a partner on more Princeton games and only choose games when I had a partner that they didn't always have uh, budgeted at the time and then send a follow-up tape. And within about another six months, we got to a point where he really liked it and said, I'd like to hire you, uh, but we needed a hole in the schedule. Uh, And it took about two and a half years from my first communication until he had an opening for a women's regional final in Philadelphia at Temple. It was Duke against UConn. And I did that one game and it went well. And and then things kind of snowballed from there. And lest anyone think that Howie Dederoff was blowing you off, he really is probably the busiest guy in the entire industry. Yeah, I mean, he when when things weren't as they are now, he goes into the office from from Jersey into New York, and pretty much every day he is listening to somebody's tape, and he gives as fair, as direct, as honest of feedback that you'll ever get from an executive in this industry. And he is one of the all-time nice guys. We have to give uh, Larry Costigan a shout-out to and Mike Eby and the rest of the crew because they are all fantastic. Um, so – you were doing uh, Princeton uh, football and basketball, if memory serves, right? Uh, I was doing Princeton hoops. I did some select Princeton football games okay. on, on regional TV. Okay. Um, and then uh, eventually into uh, bigger time, if you will, college basketball. Um, do you remember what would be the, um, the turning point, you think, the launch pad of, of your career? What was, what was the one game that you thought you would really made it? Um, to be honest, I think a lot of it was a very slow build. Uh, and, and to be bluntly honest, there were times during the first uh, probably four or five years uh, with the, the Blue Rocks, the A-ball baseball team in Delaware, uh, doing Princeton hoops and doing Delaware women's hoops all at the same time where I, I felt like I was stagnating. And I, if the right other job out of the industry had arrived, I probably would have left. I, I was dating uh, the woman that became my wife and the mother of our child. And, and uh, I was growing increasingly frustrated. I, I could not find a football job. I wrote every collegiate program, division one, two, and three and junior college within an eight hour driving radius for the better part of five years. The only offer I got in that time was for division two Bentley in Massachusetts. The pay was 50 bucks a game before taxes, no compensation for travel couldn't even arrange a trade for a hotel room, which you know, I understand it's a division two program. Right. Uh, and I, I thought about it and I said, I'm going to have to take a day off work just to make it there. Um, it's going to cost me that much money. I really want the tape. And I declined. Um, and that was a very uh, crestfallen moment. Uh, but I, I think the moment where it really sparked bigger interest was probably when Princeton beat Harvard in a one-game playoff, uh, they were co-Ivy champions. This was going to determine who's going to the NCAA tournament. Right. And they played at Yale, uh, and it came down to a last-second shot. And Doug Davis, Princeton's uh, emerging scoring star, who grew up uh, uh, in the greater Philadelphia area and then went to the Hunt School, very close to Princeton in central Jersey, hit the game-winning shot. And that got played 
on SportsCenter. It led SportsCenter for 24 hours was my call of that moment, um, which was pretty awesome. And I got a lot of pub from that. And I think that played a big role in helping me uh, to get an agent uh, in helping me to get some reps uh, with ESPN three. Um, and, and that was probably the biggest ripple that led to every other domino that, that fell thereafter. And the dominoes have been falling for you pretty well. Uh, we mentioned last summer you wound up on the uh, Mets play-by-play, uh, filling in for Howie, Howie Rose. And uh, I, I have to go back, if you don't mind, uh, a little bit before that. Uh, do you remember the phone call when they said, hey, we want to bring you in? Uh, I do. I do. I, it's uh, it, That was another kind of slow build. You know, I had always spoken with Mark Chernoff. Uh, from my time with the Yankees AAA team in Scranton. And I was told that, you know, hey, if, uh, if something comes up, if John misses a game, you would be, you know, part of the consideration to fill in. And uh, with his oldest child, uh, with her high school graduation, it was told to me months before a season that could be a possibility. Of course, that, that never came to fruition. And uh, when I had read about the Mets making the shift uh, going back to, to Entercom, I thought, well, you know, this, anytime rights change, weird stuff happens. So I'm just going to reach out and say, hey, if something happens, I know you don't even have the rights, but if you do get the rights, I'd love to be considered. And I heard nothing for months. Uh, then I heard, can you send me a tape? I sent him a tape, heard nothing for months. Uh, and to be honest, I kind of had given up that it was going to happen. It was about three months since our last dialogue when I'd sent the tape. Uh, it was New Year's Day. And I sent an email just to say Happy New Year's, just to kind of, you know, hey, I'm here. I'm not bothering you. You you take your time. And he wrote back, I I may have some games for you this year. Are you interested? And, uh, wow, that was – Are you interested? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Could you answer that email any quicker than you did? Oh, my goodness. I mean, to be honest, it makes you emotional just just thinking about it. Um, Because, you know, I, I was in the minors for a long, long time. And uh, I really thought that would never happen. And to even see the potential of, of an offer, it wasn't even a firm offer because they, right. they didn't know things were still kind of coming together. Uh, right. But wow. I mean, I, I cried. It was, it was a really big deal. We have seen John over the years, you know, these quote unquote career minor leaguers that get the call to the show as players, but uh, walking in to do your first MLB play by play on the Mets broadcast side, what did that feel like? Oh, uh, so many, so much energy, so many nerves. It's, you know, it's odd. You do so many games. Uh, I was in the minors basically from 2004 through 2017. And you figure you're doing about 140 ish games a year, depending upon level and, and conflicts and playoffs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's a lot of games. And, uh, and it, it felt like a first game, you know, it, it, it just different. There's a different energy and aura to it. Um, it had helped that, they allowed me to go out to city uh, for multiple games weeks in advance to kind of get the lay of the land, see the booth, see how everything works in person. Uh, I mean, literally even just being at that height, having access to a live monitor. Um, these were all things that I didn't have or right. that were vastly different in the minors that you have to adjust to. Um, and I hadn't done baseball in a year and a half. I, uh, I, I quit my minor league job. I resigned in Scranton to focus on my national work, chiefly because our daughter was getting older and was recognizing I wasn't there. And uh, the, the rail riders 
were very successful, the Yankees AAA team. They had won the overall AAA title with Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez and Luis Severino and Chad Green and all those guys. The next year, they were very good. Clint Frazier was on the team. Um, they made it again to their league finals. And then we hosted the AAA championship, uh, which was Durham, the Rays team, was playing against the Cardinals club. And after that game, I went home. And because of the overlap of football and baseball playoffs and everything, I had not been home in three weeks. My family at that time was living in Wilmington. I was up in Scranton. It's about a three-hour drive. And uh, I was seeing my daughter off to, to priest. Uh, preschool that next morning so she's in the back seat of my wife's van and I lean in to give her a kiss and she latches on to my face a hand on each cheek and yanks me in and nose to nose looking me right in the eye says daddy be home more and uh that was that was really hard and uh I, I put in my resignation the next day and I basically punted on major league baseball I thought you know I, I had that time but the odds of it were not great. Increasingly, as you mentioned, kind of that graduation in the minors on a player-like level, going right. up level to level. That historically is how a lot of announcers did it. Not all, but a lot. By that point, that was rare. It, not a lot of minor league guys were getting chances. They were going to names that were recognizable within the market or that had long associations with the teams or the stations or national TV people. Uh, it wasn't going to minor league radio announcers. And uh, uh, there was so much energy that first day. Um, my phone was bombarded with text messages and with uh, social media alerts. And uh, the hardest thing was kind of putting that aside and just focusing on calling the game. Did you have anything memorable happen that first game? <sighs> so much of it really is a blur. I mean, the most memorable thing of all is to just arrived at the ballpark. Um, I got there probably an hour before anybody else did. Howie was the, the first person there when I was there, and uh, the booth was locked. So I was actually sitting outside of the radio booth just looking at the field. You know, some guys were out there doing early work and just trying to process that I was there. And then the first person that I interact with is Howie Rose. You know, I grew up a huge New York Rangers fan. Matteau mm -hmm. Matteau is like one of the, the signature moments of my sports childhood. Um, and so to be alongside a guy who I greatly respect and, and adore as an announcer um, and on a very, you know, uh, secondary level, new to some extent, um, but we had a mutual friend, a guy that I knew in the minors that gave Howie his first on-air job in college. And Howard Kelman, who works for the Pirates AAA team in Indianapolis, had put me in touch with Howie uh, years earlier. And uh, that, that was very odd. I mean, just the goosebump moment of sitting there. I'm sitting next to Howie Rose and I'm going to mm -hmm. call him New York Mets game with Howie. It was not <laughs> regular just, season too. Yeah. It was crazy to me in the best way possible. That's uh that's a heck of a story. Uh, do you remember the first, uh, first college basketball game you did on Westwood? Uh, well, the first game I did was the women's regional final. Oh, right. That's my bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the first regular season uh, men's game that I did, uh, was UConn Notre Dame uh, at Notre Dame. Uh, Tom Brennan was my partner, uh, who's a, a great dude, former head coach at Vermont, the governor of Vermont. Uh, right. we, we still call or text each other every once in a while uh, to say hello. He could not have been nicer, more gracious, more accommodating. And, uh, and it's odd how things, you know, kind of come full circle in many ways, how 
different parts of your life coalesce together in unexpected fashion. Um, you know, the head coach of Notre Dame is Mike Bray. Well, Mike Bray's big break as a, as a head coach was at the University of Delaware. Yep. And I spent eight years doing mostly women's, but, you know, some fill-in men's stuff at U of D. And uh, his brother, Shane, uh, worked across the street from the Blue Rocks, uh, running the, the Wilmington Riverfront stuff for years. And uh, I had given him multiple car rides. We knew each other from, from working at, at the Bob, uh, the arena where uh, the Delaware teams play. And Tom Brennan spent many years in America East at Vermont when Mike Bray was at Delaware. So we're in his office for like two hours and they're just telling stories of old America East basketball. And, and uh, it, it was, it was very, very surreal how like all these little things over a decade plus kind of came together in that moment for that, that one game. And your first NFL game on Westwood. Because to me, you've become the voice of, of Thanksgiving, the early Thanksgiving game. I think of <laughs> John Sadak. It's, I'm like, oh, 1230, got to turn on John. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been lucky enough to do the, the, the Cowboys on Thanksgiving uh, for most of the last half decade, which is a super, super cool event and game. Um, the whole experience. I'm usually with James Lofton for it, who was my first ever Westwood One partner. Uh, the first football game I ever did for them uh, was a college game, and I did Penn State, Nebraska. Uh, to be honest, I was supposed to do a TCU Boise State game that same week. They did double headers weekly back then. Mm-hmm. And maybe a month before the game, Howie calls and says, John, we're going to take you off Boise TCU, and we're going to change you to Penn State, Nebraska. And our thought process is, uh, you know, this game is supposed to be at Boise on the blue turf, which is kind of noisy and difficult. Our broadcast position there isn't great. You're inside of the 20-yard line. It'd be hard to see the other end of the field. Um, support staff-wise, you know, they hire locally for a spotter or a stats person. Right. Uh, we're not as confident who we could get there that would be great for you. So we're going to move you to Penn State, Nebraska. It's at State College. We're going to have James Lofton, the Sunday night NFL primetime analyst, Larry Costigan, the Sunday night primetime NFL producer. We have an NFL stats guy, an NFL spotter. You're on the 50, and two programs you're probably more familiar with independently anyway. Uh, to make it easier, to make the, the, the transition as seamless as possible so you can focus on just calling the game. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be the week that the Penn State scandal broke. Right. And, you know, to be honest, I was torn up that whole week because here's my national broadcast debut on football. And I am terrified of, it wasn't until midweek that the decision was made that Joe Paterno wouldn't coach. He's going to coach. They're going to win. We don't really know at that time. We didn't know what the full scandal was. Is it valid? How much did he know? We still don't know, to be honest. Uh, But at the time, my worry was they win on senior day. He had announced at one point that week he plans to retire after the game. They're going to carry him off the field. And what's my call that's going to live forever? There goes one of the the greatest legends to ever coach, or there goes a man amid a swirl of controversy that we don't know how history will be written years after what the perspective would be. Um, And, and, you know, somewhat thankfully on a personal selfish level, I never had to make that decision uh, because he, he didn't coach the game. Uh, the first NFL game, though, was a Chargers game in San Diego. So I got grossly spoiled <laughs> by the, the sight line, the city, and everything. Uh, and uh, the, the, the whole experience with them has, has just been fantastic. You know, Howie is 
one of the great feedback men of all time. Their producers are spot on. They have excellent ears for what's happening. And the, the analysts are, are truly top notch in terms of their prep, their working knowledge and, and their friendliness here, your ability to really connect with them that I think spills over onto the air. Yeah. Let me ask you about prep because you do all these different sports and obviously the preparation as far as getting background information is generally the same, no matter what sport you're doing, you want to get in on bios and stats and all kinds of things. But as far as um, maybe a spotter board goes, um, does, does your board look different for a college game versus a pro game? Yes. I, I would say it looks very different college versus pro and radio versus TV. Uh, college, you just need more spots. So many more guys are playing. Uh, to be honest, calling NFL games, I would say on the whole, while there's more maybe pressure because of the national interest, calling a pro game is way easier. Uh, the players are readily recognizable. You don't have the same roster turnover uh, that you do in college. And what roster turnover there is, it's usually filled in with the apex collegiate stars of the year prior or other guys with years of NFL experience you just know from other teams. Um, and you don't have to explain as much about background with the NFL. You're, you're almost insulting the audience if you bring up you know, top-of-page media guide stuff. It has right. to be more about that game, that moment, where in college sometimes you do have to flesh out the backstory of somebody. Um, and on television, you need more – uh, bio information or storylines, you know, the things to talk about beyond the game itself that the game always dictates. You always are beholden to the game and circle back to the game, but that you're ready for in case they emerge in the game. Uh, where on radio, there's really not much of a window for elongated storytelling. It's down and distance, time and score, formation, play, shut up and let your analyst talk, get in a card for a commercial read or a promo of some sort and repeat over and over and over again. On the uh, John Sadak highlight rule, uh, highlight reel, uh, if that Princeton game-winning hoop against Harvard is number one, what's number two? Well, it, it, I guess it depends upon perspective. Um, you know, for me personally, I would say number one overall is my collegiate radio call of my alma mater snapping what was the longest win streak in college football history. Uh, Rowan's longtime nemesis was Mount Union, uh, right. a juggernaut nationally at the Division Three level. And they had lost to them in multiple national championship games badly, were embarrassed on national television. Uh, and then in the fall of 99, they played Mount Union, uh, then riding a 54-game win streak. They had broken Oklahoma's record for the longest in college football history. There's a national semifinal for the right to go to the title game at Mount Union, and Rowan beat them in overtime. Uh, and that was amazing. And the, the starting running back was playing on a torn MCL, couldn't oh, wow. cut at all. Uh, it was a freshman quarterback. Uh, it, it was storybook. It was just for the small college level, and I was so invested and so emotionally tied into that team. I was in class with all those guys. I saw those guys around town all the time. Uh, that was special. Um, it, it's been weird. You know, I, I've had the good fortune of being around a lot of long streaks. You know, my, my first year doing Delaware women's games, they, they broke a 110 game home court conference win streak for old dominion, which had been a long national power. Um, and I, I got to call the Yukon uh, Mississippi state final four semifinal, uh, when Yukon's 111 game winning streak was stopped 
by a Mississippi State team that lost to the UConn the year before in the tournament by 60, yeah. setting the all-time record for that, that round of the tournament, lose by 60 points and beat them the next year uh, in, in a shocked arena. Um, there have been a lot. I, I've been lucky to be around a lot of big moments, kind of just by coincidence, um, and have been so lucky to have seats like that and to be part of that experience. So coaches, when they look at the pregame notes and they see your name, if they have a streak, they want to run the other way. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> they, they might not know that, but as soon as they find it out, you know how superstitious they can be. They would yeah. definitely do that. Goodness gracious. Um, let, let's talk about uh, quarantine time, if you don't mind. Uh, we are slowly getting back to some sort of normalcy. Um, but there are questions that abound about whether we will see a regular season of the NFL come September. Before that, will we see the conclusion of the NBA and NHL seasons? And somewhere in the middle, do we see any semblance of a major league baseball season? What's your take on all of this? To be honest, it shifts day by day. I mean, there are days where I think uh, 99% this is going to happen, and there are days I think uh, I, I don't see anything occurring. Um, I, I just don't think we know enough. Um, I, I, I think I defer, of course, to what our national experts tell us. And, and from what I hear increasingly is that testing is the, the number one needed thing. Um, and are we at a point where that can be done enough um, to adequately, you can't ensure safety. There will never be a hundred percent safety right. with anything. I mean, there's not life is not a hundred percent safe, um, but to a satisfactory level for all parties involved. And that goes beyond the players, you know, it goes to support staff and coaches and, and many of whom are part of a population that is a much higher risk for, for this virus. Uh, my instinct is though, that, you know, pro sports are, built around money and high level collegiate sports are built around money. Um, I think money dictates a lot. Uh, shouldn't always, I think safety should be paramount. I, I do think that will be a giant concern. Um, but I think when you're dealing with that level of money and you see other pro leagues around the world have found ways to at least try, I think uh, the safest, most earnest attempt will be made. And I have no clue what happens, and I think this is something that needs to be defined too, what happens that you start one of these leagues and somebody tests positive? How do you handle it? What's the ripple effect? What if another person tests positive? Um, I, I don't even know that you can go into it with defined total rules. I, I think everything has to be malleable and kind of adjust on the fly as things happen. Uh, but my instinct would be that we're going to see something from these leagues at some point. I do think there will be some form of pro sports attempt uh, in our country before the end of the calendar year. Will it actually play through the entire season tournament, whatever it is for each respective league? I really have no idea. I agree. Uh, as a husband and a father, um, if, for example, we're going to start games up with just the teams and essential team personnel at the stadium, in the arena, um, and the broadcasters on site too. From a personal standpoint, would you be okay broadcasting from on site, or would you rather be in a studio somewhere else to call uh, the no, game? I would be fine with being on site because I, I do think that if they 
if they attempt this, um, they're going to do it with you know, the, the, the most educated, informed of plans. Uh, and I would have faith and trust in that. And I, I think it, at some point, inevitably, we're going to do that to some extent, right? I mean, I, I think the consensus, and, and Dr. Fauci has said this, uh, the virus is not going to magically go away. At some point, there's going to be a managed risk analysis for, for all of us. Um, and we can't live like this forever. Um, so if they deem it safe and appropriate to try that, I would be more than fine with, with being on site. And to be honest, I don't like calling games off monitors. Um, that's something that is going to happen more in our working lifetime. It already is to some extent. Uh, this may accelerate or increase that to different margins. And, hey, I'm happy to have work, and I love calling games. So however an employer wants me to do it, I will readily do it. Uh, but if I have a choice, I would always rather be on site uh, just to soak up the atmosphere, even if there is a no fans in the stand atmosphere, that that is an atmosphere in and of itself to be able to see things that the monitor doesn't necessarily show you in an arena or a stadium. Um, but I, I would be more than okay with that. I would do it. If everything sort of starts to come back at the same time, let's look at maybe late summer or early fall. Hopefully, frankly, I think I'm, I'm hoping it's sooner than later. But uh, if everything were to start to come back at around the same time, you are among those people who will go from famine to feast. <laughs> where do your feet wind up first? Uh, well, uh, to, to be honest, that's where I, I wonder. Um, you know, I think my, my main employer in recent years has been CBS Sports Network. That's where most of my inventory is. They have been great to me. I love them as a company. I'm already signed with them for this next uh, uh, collegiate season. I do college football with Randy Cross weekly, and then college basketball, and a, a hodgepodge of lacrosse or baseball or other spring events as they emerge. Um, I would imagine that would take priority. Uh, and I, I also would think that if we're looking at, you know, for instance, if there were a shortened Major League Baseball season, I, I did have a schedule to work Mets games this year. Um, but if they're playing 80 games, I don't know that they're going to need a fill-in guy. Right. Um, similarly with the NFL, depending upon how that would go and how overlap would exist with or without college football, um, it, it would really vary. It would depend upon how the schedule is laid out. I could see a need for more announcers because there could be more games given an independent window. I could also see a narrowing where uh, uh, things are more hyper-focused and there might be a need to have one set of announcers calling multiple games, being quarantined in a certain spot. Um, to be honest, I'm, I'm too ignorant to know yet how everything is structured. Uh, but my instinct would be that if there's collegiate football, that I, I would probably be mostly focusing on that work with CBS Sports Network. I'm curious to know how you feel, because um, I've had this discussion with a, a few people over the last couple of weeks and, and even going back beyond that. Um, the thinking is, if there's no one on campus come August, it'll be very hard to have college football or any college sports until students are allowed back on campus in classrooms and in the dorms. And if you wait to start for example, college football until the middle of winter and you go into late spring. While it sounds great, 
it's also going to have an impact on next year, on 2021 into 22. And I'm wondering, same thing with basketball, uh, college basketball, which obviously was cut off at some point during uh, many of the big uh, conference tournaments in March, including the Big East, which got scotched at halftime of that St. John's Creighton game at the Garden. Um, same situation, right? If, if they wait so long to start up the new season, it starts to have a domino effect on the next season and the season after that. And I'm wondering um, what you think about that. You know, while it may be a short-term solution, it seems like it would have long-term impact. Certainly. Yeah, I, I think that's part of the reality for everything right now. I mean, even beyond the world of sport is that we're going to see uh, more than ripples. We're going to see cresting giant waves uh, that, that emerge from this and continue um, for years to come. And I don't know that there is any one universal answer. Uh, my initial instinct right now, and this literally changes by day, um, is that I think we will see college football regionally will happen. And there will be many teams at the high major, you know, FBS level that will not play. Uh, and exactly because of what you're talking about, about having students on campus. And I think there may be some schools that uh, do have football without students on campus. Um, you know, I think the, the one misnomer that a lot of the, the country has with college football, the NCAA doesn't really run college football. They run the stats for it, and there, there's, there's certain oversight that's involved, but college football doesn't have a, a national playoff at the FBS level, um, similar to every other sport. At FCS Division II, Division Three, yes, but at the FBS level with the bowl system and the CFP, and those are all independently run. And, you know, the real power brokers in college sport, the, the folks who truly make the decisions are the presidents of the universities by proxy of their board of trustees. And, you know, they divest some of that to the commissioners of their respective leagues. Um, but really it's, it's the presidents and the boards of trustees of these schools that decide what they do on, on every level, even beyond sport. You know, that's just how colleges work. Um, and because of that, on an even you know, bigger level than what we're seeing in terms of governors and states and making decisions for their, their own you know, constituencies across the country, we're going to see that with collegiate sport. Um, and, and my instinct is because of the operating revenue that football generates collegiately, there are some places where their numbers are lower or they feel a greater sense of confidence. They're getting advice from their own uh, more local or regionalized medical authorities. Um, I, I think unless there's some form of federal mandate, I think they're going to try. And I think there are going to be places that will be exceptions to that. As we wrap things up with John Sadak, uh, I have to ask a um, sort of a silly question, if you don't mind, but you sure. did mention the astrophysicist um, in you earlier. Big Bang, are you a Sheldon, a Leonard, a Raj, or a Howard? I'm kind of probably a composite of all four, to be honest, at different <laughs> times. Um, you know, I love comic books. I, I love a lot of the uh, the sci-fi and fantasy geeky stuff that they love as well. Um, I suppose in terms of uh, their their fields of study, um, I would aspire to be a Sheldon, uh, but I think socially I, I probably fall uh, more like a Leonard. 
I ask because I, I got into college as a computer science major, and it was right around the time of Revenge of the Nerds. Mm-hmm. And so I realized pretty much on day one that I was none of them. <laughs> this is not where my life will take me. And of course, had I stuck with it, who knows what would have happened You know, with the, uh, with the dot-com boom. But uh, <laughs> I'm just wondering, as you know, when you when you get into college as an astrophysicist, I guess you were a little bit before Big Bang Theory. Um, how that how that had an impact on your life, if at all? Uh, well, to the the pop culture phenomenons that I probably most identified with, uh, I, I loved Stephen Hawking's work. I, I read his books. Um, uh, I was a big Einstein fan. Um, and I, I can't claim to process things at anywhere near their level. Um, and, and this was, you know, somebody who was a high school student that loved math and science that that wanted to study it in college. I, I don't have anywhere near that working knowledge of it. Um, and, and to be honest, I think once I decided on uh, trying to work in sports broadcasting in some way with the, the ideal goal of being on air, but very willing uh, and eager to do anything within the industry. Um, I, I discovered that that's where my passion really was. You know, I, I love math and science, um, but I also love sports. It, it was the tethering connecting force for me and most of my friends uh, with, with me and my father, with me and my brother. Um, there are, are so many significant, deeply rooted relationships in my life that revolve around sport in some way and sharing that experience. And, uh, I just didn't think it was feasible or possible. And when I, I got to college with that in mind, I had the greatest sense of identity that I've ever had in my life. Uh, and it still resonates with me to this day. So you mentioned um, that you're getting out as often as you can uh, during this quarantine period. And, and we're slowly getting back to what some might consider a normal routine, certainly up uh, here in North Jersey and in the New York City um, vicinity, not quite yet. Um, what is it over these last couple of months, aside from the the work, um, the actual work and the preparation that you have missed the most about being stuck in um, in a quarantine? Uh, a lot. I mean, I, I love traveling. I love seeing different parts of the country. Um, I, I love connecting with people and different kinds of people at different places. Um, there is a certain element of uh, being by yourself, focused and preparing for a game that I, I truly enjoy. I mean, I, I'm still a geek in how I like the prep almost as much as I like the game. I, I love discovering things that I didn't know or different angles on backgrounds and stories and yeah, stats to some extent, but I think stats are just a tool that help flesh out story, you know, that help kind of um, give a, a sense of depth uh, to how significant something is. Uh, but but learning all those elements of it. And and I, I really miss the, the energy of the arena. And that's something that for me, you know, I've thought about some as we're talking about events with no fans. Um, I've, I've done events like that. When you do minor league baseball, even at yeah. the AAA level, you know, you're in Syracuse, New York on a Monday night, nobody there. Um, and you have to kind of create your own energy. So I'm familiar with that, but not necessarily with a lot of the events that I do and, and with the, the employers that I work with currently. Um, I love that rush. I love that, you know, that goosebump moment that I still get. Um, 
before you go on the air when you're at a packed, uh, energy-filled, loud building. Um, that is the sensation of you know hearing go or you're on um, and kind of just living that moment and and being uh, the voice for those that are listening, whether it's TV or radio or whatever the sport it is, and helping to tell a story, um, helping to kind of live through that game, those players, those coaches, that moment. Uh, it's such a, a an energy rush. It's such an adrenaline kick. Um, it's a high that I love, and I'm I'm addicted to it. I love it. Uh, I, I miss that terrible. And John, aside from working out your very crowded itinerary, when we get the all clear, what's the what's the first thing you'll do? Whew. Uh, to be honest, once I know that I'll be working again, I, I think uh, even though we've had a lot of extended time together as a family, it would probably make me want to soak that up even more. You know, uh, at least get one last dollop of it before you dive right back in, especially if I wind up working multiple sports, multiple networks that are all overlapping. Um, you know, we could see a recreation of what it was like for me in my daughter's first three years. And I was working 200 events a year. I was rarely home. I loved what I did, but I missed a lot. And uh, if we ever got that all clear that things were going to happen again, I'd probably make sure that I spent at least a day or two um, more deeply you know, treasuring every moment of it and trying to get some specific things done together that we haven't had a chance to. And you mentioned that you had been watching some uh, old games from your youth. Um, Do you find yourself, uh, and I've noticed that uh, some other guys that we've talked to before, the play-by-players, you know, every once in a while you put a game on TV and you'll find yourself reverting to an old habit and actually calling the game, if not under your breath, then turning the sound down and, and working on your calls. Do you find yourself doing that at all? Um, I, I would say probably more the opposite. I find when I go back and listen to old calls, um, you know, if you asked me before I started doing it, uh, what did you think of Pat Summerall as an announcer? I would tell you, you know, uh, he was the voice of the NFL. You know, he had a deep resonant tone. He was understated in the best possible way. But memories fade, you know, like you remember things kind of, um, you know, edges of it, shadows of it. And then you watch it again and you're like, holy cow, like, this guy was amazing. I, I, I probably wind up more marveling at how good all of these guys were and listening to nuances of how they do things or, or even more so sometimes how they don't do things, how they lay out at certain spots, how they defer how they bring someone else in, how they weave rather seamlessly a nugget in, how they caption a moment perfectly um, and appreciate it. And to some extent, soak it up uh, in ways that kind of fit my own style. Um, board games. Do you play with the daughter? Uh, she's more a video gamer, iPad and uh, Nintendo switch. There's a lot of animal crossing, a lot of Minecraft and Roblox um, we do play Uno, not really a, a board game, but she does like Uno and she's hyper competitive, uh, which I, I think is overall a good trait. But, you know, sometimes we've got to kind of bring her down a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. But I do tr- talk trash to her, um, our seven-year-old. So <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to ride both sides of the seesaw there. You know, I, I want her to care. I, I want her to be into it. But um, uh, sometimes it can, it can go a little bit over the line uh, in the best way possible. Uh, we do play, her- uh, we play life once in a while. Um, okay. uh, she has a, my little pony game, uh, that she's very into, uh, Candyland. 
so we do have some that we work in. Um, and actually, my best friend from high school uh, is a world champion board gamer. He, uh, he plays mostly Agricola these days, which is some form of farming game. Uh, huh. He tells me stories of it. Uh, he's very upset that it, it looks like this year's World Championships have yet, but will likely be canceled uh, in July. Uh, but he is a, a hyper-competitive World Champion board gamer. World Champion board gamer. Now, have you taught the child the Matumbo finger wag? Oh, she knows it. Oh, she okay. she surprises us regularly um, with the the type of trash talk that she offers. She'll turn a phrase um, immediately with, 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 without any hesitation as she throws a card, as she makes a play, as she moves a piece um, in, in the most emphatic and dramatic of fashion that usually has us laughing uh, <laughs> rather hard. Nice. Very nice. All right. I want to wrap things up. If you don't mind, uh, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. You've seen Aaron Judge in his AAA days. You saw Pete Alonzo up close with the Mets in his rookie season last year. Obviously, one held the rookie home run title for a little bit, and the other now holds it for however long that may last. Uh, Mets and Yankees fans, New York City baseball fans want to know, and you have uh, an educated opinion on the matter, uh, who will have the better career, Judge or Alonzo? That is tough. Um, it, they're so similar in so many ways, even beyond how they play, you know, how they are as people and how they interact. Um, you know, Aaron Judge is the, uh, the first player that I ever experienced, especially as a high-level prospect, you know, first-round draft pick, uh, that introduced himself to me as if he needed to. I mean, the man is six foot eight and 275 pounds. And uh, the first day I saw him in the clubhouse, he walked over to say, hi, I'm Aaron Judge. Who are you? Um, and uh, his parents are incredibly sweet, awesome people, school teachers in California, uh, who I interacted with many times in the minors. Um, you know, Judge is a big weapon in the outfield, uh, played center in college and did a little bit in AAA now and then too. And they kind of cross-trained the players at, at different positions, has an amazing throwing arm. Um, but you know, Pete had such a special season uh, and, and I think is way better defensively than all the scouting reports said, and I think has an even higher ceiling than that. Uh, to me, the, the biggest um, difficulty is just projecting the injury with Aaron Judge. Um, you know, he, he was hurt his first year when he got drafted. He didn't play that summer uh, because he had a leg injury. Uh, so I, I think the, the injury bug is going to be that looming question mark for, for Aaron Judge. If he's healthy, um, I, I, I think it's an incredibly close call. I, I don't really think he can make a call. Uh, but based upon, you know, health to this point, Pete hasn't had the injury issues that Aaron has. And if Pete can go out there and play 150, 160 games a year, uh, th- that's going to have more value over the course of your career. If Aaron Judge is healthy, I, I think it's a, a race that we will love to watch over the coming years. John, two-part question. Uh, through your years with Lakewood and then Wilmington and Scranton, um, who is the guy that you saw who you didn't expect would become as good as he did? And then on the flip side, who was a guy that you thought was an absolute can't miss who did? Hmm. I would say uh, the guy who I thought was a can't miss 
there, there are a few. Um, actually, in the Orioles system, there were two that kind of come to mind. Uh, Dylan Bundy, you know, who has still pitched and has shown great. And Matt Weeders, the catcher, switch hitter with great power. Um, I, I just thought they would both be monsters. I, I thought they would be, you know, by this point, 10-time All-Stars. Um, and, you know, I've had their own respective challenges with, with injury uh, and, and performance that have limited them, uh, that they haven't lived up to what, what I thought was a, an astronomical ceiling uh, during that time. In terms of guys who emerged uh, better than I would have thought, uh, probably the guys who, who spring most to mind are with the Royals organization. Gerard Dyson, outfielder, um, who was a 50th round pick, junior college, was super fast, a great outfielder. Um, hardworking dude, uh, but had a lot to overcome, you know, as a 50th round Juco draft pick and very light bat at a ball to, to, to see him get to the majors and find the role that he has. And, uh, and Salvador was a, was the a part of a three catcher platoon his first year in a full season, a ball. He was very young for the level, but he was, you know, a, a solid hitter with, you know, below average power was a very good receiver uh, but I had no idea that he would become uh, arguably the best catcher in baseball. Yeah, if he didn't have his injury, I, I think he would be in an even greater foreground in terms of national consciousness uh, that way in, in the moment. Uh, but he, he and Gerard were two guys that um, the organization liked that were very toolsy, but I, I don't think I ever would have guessed they would have had the respective successes that they've had. It's funny you mentioned Weeders, and it occurred to me. I've been an Orioles fan since I, I had a chance to uh, to cover them that magical season of '89 when they took the Blue Jays down to the final weekend of the season, the year after they had gone 0 21 to get Cal Senior fired, um, and had uh, just a terrific season in '89. And Greg Olson, their relief pitcher, was the uh, Rookie of the Year, and I thought he had maybe the best curveball I had ever seen in my entire life. But I, I was thinking back to Weeders and that he finally got out of Baltimore. Now he only went, you know, across the beltway to the nationals, but then he missed out on a world series because he was in St. Louis last year. So he was with the nationals for a couple of years and he might've finally gotten a taste of a championship and, and wound up in St. Louis. And of course not winning the world series with the Cardinals last year. And it's just, it just goes to show the, 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 bad, the bad luck that he has had over the course of his career. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's had a very good career, uh, but I, I thought he was going to be a, a 290 hitter, you know, flirting with 500 home run. I I, I really, and scouts that I spoke to, a lot of my opinion is informed by those who know better than I do. And I lean on a lot of their professional judgment as well. And, you know, scouts were off the charts raving about him. And with due reason, I, he was, borderline unstoppable when I saw him in a ball and had that same success in double a, which is generally the cut level where you really know if guys can hang, uh, especially with the off speed and breaking stuff at the major league level as hitters. And uh, I don't think he's come quite to the point where I thought, and it's, and you're right. uh, So much of all of us in in every walk of life, circumstance, timing, uh, it's cliche, but it it matters a lot. And uh, last thing, as we wrap things up, and I do appreciate the extended uh, quarantine time that you're spending today, the first event that you, or let me ask even better, the event that you cannot wait to see once everything is back to normal. I would say the, at this point, just because of timing, I think more than anything, um, 
that first pitch of major league baseball, especially if, you know, as what's being talked about right now, as we, we talk in, in mid-May, if there is a 4th of July weekend or maybe even on the 4th of July first game, uh, that sense of, of, of some normalcy of patriotism of sport uh, would be really special to, to see that happen again, uh, especially in New York. I, I think, you know, New York has been obviously so significantly impacted disproportionately to the rest of the country and in many ways the world. And baseball uh, resonates with New York, I, I think, unlike any other sport. It's a baseball town. And that, that first moment uh, for the Mets and the Yankees, whenever play does resume, if it resumes this summer, I think will be really special uh, for, for everybody in that city and in the country. I will look forward to seeing you, sir, at City Field, hopefully later this summer. You got it, my friend. Thank you. He's John Sadak. I'm Mark Renee. And John, thank you for stopping to play-by-play with me. Likewise. Appreciate it.